0: ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Racing, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results the etf store is not affiliated with etf trends and etf database or any of its affiliates etf trends and etf database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by etf trends and etf database of the value of any etf store product or service visit etfstore.com for more information Miami Beach is calling your name to the biggest ETF industry event of the year, Exchange. Exchange is engineered to deliver high value by providing a space to learn, interact, and network with the most influential thought leaders in the industry, built with financial advisors, not just for them. Go to exchangeetf.com to register and enter Prime for 50% off your registration. Again, that's exchangeetf.com and apply the discount code Prime. See you in April
1: And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate
2: Geraci. All right, fantastic show this week. Joining me will be Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends, who they recently surveyed literally thousands of advisors on the current market environment and how they're managing client portfolios right now. You're going to get to hear exactly how advisors are viewing everything from U.S. stocks, to what's keeping them up at night, uh, to where they're allocating uh, money in terms of positioning moving forward. There are some really interesting data points here. So Tom and I will discuss those, and I'm sure we'll weave in some uh, ETF topics as well, like we usually do. I'll then be joined by Zhang Bui, head of U.S. exchange-traded products at NASDAQ, who currently lists over a trillion dollars in ETF assets, and... (laughs) This is absolutely not a survey free podcast because Zhang and I will discuss another recent survey. This one is of retail investors and it has to do with how they're researching and accessing ETFs. And I think most of you know, I just love data like this. I love getting a window into how investors are approaching the ETF market. So Zhang and I will go through the details of uh, that survey. And then if we have a few extra minutes, I also want to ask Zhang about Bitcoin ETFs because NASDAQ has tried to help push things along from their side here in terms of seeking approval to list these products. So we'll see if she has any uh, optimism whatsoever on a physical Bitcoin ETF coming to market anytime soon. And then to close this week, I'm going to visit with a brand new ETF issuer, Kevin Kelly, founder and CEO of Kelly ETFs. Now, Kevin's been involved in the ETF space for quite a while. I would definitely consider him an ETF veteran, an ETF expert, but this is a new endeavor for him. Uh, Kelly ETFs just came to market in January with three ETFs, including the Kelly Residential and Apartment Real Estate ETF, ticker R-E-S-I. So we'll discuss those ETFs. And I have to note, I just mentioned Bitcoin ETFs. So Kelly ETFs actually filed for an Ethereum Futures ETF last year. So you absolutely know I'm going to ask Kevin about that as well. Uh, it should be a great conversation. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at NateGerace, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with ETF Trends, Tom Leiden. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF
1: Trends and ETF Database the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights.
3: This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes.
2: Tom, how have you been? Thanks for joining me this week.
3: Hey, Nate. It's It's exciting to catch up with you.
2: A hundred percent. I got to ask you, how's your uh, NCAA tourney bracket doing?
3: Well, it's a lot of fun. I know, like you, I've been really looking forward to the tournament this year. You know, in most years, Nate, there appear to be some big favorites that are almost runaway winners, but that wasn't the case this year, which... Kind of made this tournament that much more exciting, wasn't it?
2: It's amazing. It always delivers. I think, obviously, the uh, St. Peter's upset of Kentucky, that was the big one. I think that ruined a lot of brackets. I was actually looking, so I'm participating in a bracket pool that you run, which I love the uh, what, what you name that. It's the bald ball, which I absolutely uh, classify <laughs> for that. But uh, I was just checking uh, before we started recording. I am 61 out of 75 entrants, uh, so I'm not faring so well. What's going on there, Nate? I don't know. You know what? And I I fancy myself somewhat of a college basketball expert. As you may know, I'm a huge uh, Kansas Jayhawk fan, but uh, I'm just not doing so well. It's tough every year. I think I have three of the uh, four Final Four. Uh it pick's still alive, but everything else, it's pretty much red X's across the bracket.
3: Yeah, but your, your Jayhawks are looking good. I think everybody got blown away with uh, Baylor and Kentucky losing. I had Kentucky winning the whole thing. Um, it, but it, it's, it's so exciting. I mean, look at uh, Duke and Coach K. I mean, you're on your seat for every game because his next loss, he's done. So it's, it's, it's fun watching that. Iowa State versus Miami, I mean, it's one of those teams are going to make it to the, to, to the final eight, which is going to be great. And then, uh, like you said, the, the Peacocks of St. Peter's and Murray State, that's going to be a blast. And then also, I, I'm a little concerned about my friars from Providence. I mean, being from New England, we barely get a team this far in the tournament. And uh, I'm really fearful of your Jayhawks there.
2: Well, I actually think they're going to give the Jayhawks all they want and and hopefully not more, but I think that's going to be a great game. But, yeah, love this time of year. Uh, I'm absolutely worthless on that opening round Thursday and Friday afternoon. You know I'm a hard worker. That's kind of when I just put things aside, relax, watch basketball, watch it all weekend. So looking forward to some games uh, this upcoming weekend. And, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, ETFs are getting a ton of run during the tourney. I I think I've seen more Invesco QQQ ads over the past week. Uh, Exactly.
3: It's it's great. We've actually been in close ties with Invesco on this. Um, We actually created another tournament for Just Advisors. Um, and for ball ball, I'm not sure if you know Nate, but the the winner gets $1,000 in QQQ shares.
2: I did not know that. I, I guess I need to uh, step up my game here. Hope uh, KU comes through. I think I have KU and Gonzaga in the uh, title game with Gonzaga winning it all, if I recall correctly. Um, okay, Tom, so before we get to these advisor survey questions, I did want to ask you about some pretty big news last week, which was Todd Rosenbluth, certainly a friend of this podcast. He's actually going to be on next week. He has joined the ETF Trends and ETF Database team, so he'll be the head of research. And then I saw that uh, Dave Nodig, who, of course, listeners are very familiar with, he now has the, the single best title in the entire asset management industry, Financial Futurist, which that just seems perfect for Dave. Uh, do you want to briefly comment on these moves? I've said before, I feel like you're building an ETF dream team over there. Well, well thanks. We're really, really excited to have Todd on board,
3: but... Uh, you know, Dave, as far as a research guy, there's not anybody better in the business. And as we have so much data and the financial industry, the ETF industry keeps moving so quickly, being able to have Dave, you know, focused on increasing the breadth and depth of, of our thought leadership. Uh, it's It's all data driven with this forward leading approach, you know, thinking about including proprietary and. Commission research. We've got uh, companies reaching out to us all the time. He's he's got aspirations of establishing advisory councils, not just for self-directed investors, but advisors and institutions, where he can get regular feedback. And, and our goal is, you know, building out our core competencies and, and helping navigate th- these latest technologies, embracing the data, and and pivoting, helping businesses pivot. To embrace new technology and and data. I mean, the the financial services industry tends to be slow to move. Uh, We've we've embraced data in a big way, as you know, and we're helping a lot of companies get there. And with Dave's new position, I think we're going to be in much better shape to help even that much more.
2: Well, I'm excited, and again, just with the addition of uh, Todd, just the depth of talent yeah. that you have over I mean, there. there's
3: not a better person in the business. I mean, Todd's one of the most likable people in the business. He He's so diverse in what he can talk about. Uh, the media uses them all the time. And it's just so great to have him on board.
2: Well, and I'm excited because listeners of this podcast will benefit as well. I mean, they, they have through our partnership with having yourself on and Tom Hendrickson and Laura Kriger, obviously Dave Nottig, now adding uh, Todd Rosenbluth into the mix. I'm I'm really excited for, uh, for our listeners. Um, okay, so you mentioned embracing data at ETF Trends and ETF Database. Let's get to these advisor survey questions. I, I, I mentioned at the top, I mean, Anytime I see these surveys, whether they're on the markets or ETFs, I just love these. I love getting a window into what advisors and investors are thinking. Um, I guess first, just explain where these came from and and sort of the timing here. When did you receive these responses?
3: So over the last three weeks, uh, as you know, we do a lot of webcasts for advisors, educating advisors on markets, strategy, portfolio construction, And going into Exchange, our conference in Miami, just three weeks away, some of the things we wanted to focus on, what are advisors thinking about right now? So we've teed up about a dozen questions that we're going to be focusing on at the conference, but a couple of these uh, teasing out. uh, You know, we're over, we we put these in front of thousands of advisors, so it's not as though it's not balanced. It's it's extremely well balanced. But we're getting some good input as far as, based on the markets today, geopolitical risk, asset allocation, what, what are advisors thinking?
2: Okay, so I have the results in hand, and what I thought I'd do is, let me tee up the questions that were asked. I'm not gonna get to all of these, I, I have a few of them. I'll offer the results as well. And then Tom, I'd just love for you to add some color here, and we can uh, certainly bat these around a little bit. So the first poll question was, my current view on the U.S. equity market is, and there were three options, the S&P 500 will hit a new high by the end of the year. The S&P 500 will decline by 20% sometime this year. And then the S&P 500 will stay within a, a 10% trading range for the balance of 2022. And, and just for some context, the S&P 500 is currently down, what, about 6 7% from its record high uh, hit in early January. So the results were 25% said the S&P will hit a new high by the end of the year. said it will decline by 20% sometime this year. And then about 57% said it will stay within a 10% trading range for for the balance of the year. So uh, let's start there. What what do you take away from these results? Do these tell you anything at all? Well, uh,
3: advisors like self-directed investors in the last 10 years have been extremely bullish. But I think right now with inflationary pressure, rising interest rates, what's going on in Eastern Europe, uh, con- concerns about growth and valuations—all those translate into most advisors feeling like we're going to be flat as as we close out 2022, um, and we're seeing that more money that's going into value for sure, uh, more money in in the money market funds than we've seen in a long, long time. Uh, I, I think we don't see the optimism among advisors that we saw in the last 10 years, and they're voting with their feet.
2: Well, I'm always of the belief, you know, I thought about this this question a little bit just from my own perspective. I'm always of the belief that the S&P 500 could drop 20% plus at any time. <laughs> I think that's the not because I'm, I'm bearish. I just think that's the basic entry fee for playing in the equity markets. Uh, however, I'm not going to sit here and make any predictions. We just went through my NCAA tournament bracket. I think everyone knows my uh, crystal ball is broken. But what I will say is, You know, I think a trading range can be difficult for advisors, clients. And the way that I would frame that is, if the markets are going up, everyone's happy, right? Everyone's making money. If the market's down, obviously people aren't going to be happy with that. But usually there's a pretty good reason to point to as to why, right? People can at least point to something maybe right now like rising rates or, or Ukraine. And so I think most people get it. They may not like it, but it makes sense. Trading ranges, I think, can be difficult because... Clients might not be getting any returns, uh, the advisor's still clipping their AUM fee or whatever, and, and the client doesn't really see any tangible uh, benefit. I, I just think that can be tougher advisors. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, just that, no, that sideways trading.
3: You're right, Nate, for sure. Uh, I think there's more concern for advisors on the other side of the balance sheet. Uh, with rising rates uh, and what that does for bonds, it, it, it we really haven't experienced that in decades. So... Things are lining up. The Fed is going to get busy with hiking rates over the next year or so. And where do you make income? How do you protect the income? How do you protect that side of the balance sheet is is more concerning to advisors than the equity portion. And then on top of that, inflation. Uh, Purchasing power is a major concern right now. And with the Fed being uh, a little bit weary about hiking interest rates as much as they were planning to, based on what's going on geopolitically, it means that inflation may continue to run for a period of time, which makes things more expensive for clients. And their purchasing power just doesn't hold up.
2: Now, on the other hand, one thing that I will mention, we we talked about the 25% that think the S&P will hit a new high by the end of the year. I'm not sure if you've been tracking these flows into uh, the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, VOO, uh, and then also IVV, the iShares S&P 500 ETF. It's unreal, Tom. I mean, last I checked, I think there's Like 24 billion that's gone into VOO and 14 billion into IVV. So I think what that points to is even though there has been a lot of turmoil in the markets, some some advisors and investors are clearly allocating for the longer term still.
3: Well, most have been rewarded for buying on dips, and uh, yeah, I think the the number's up to 26 billion in VOO right now. Uh, They have not got penalized by having that. Uh, discipline in place. And fingers crossed, let's hope they continue to be right. Uh, As you say, we can get a 20% decline in the S&P at any point in time. Uh, And right now, we've had some fear in the market, but it's been nothing like we've seen, you know, over 15 years ago.
2: Okay, so you, you said, you know, investors hope will be right. Let's talk about what could go wrong. So one of the survey questions was, which of the following concerns you the most about the markets right now? And the options were dividend sustainability, geopolitical risk, market volatility, prolonged economic slowdown, and rising rates and inflation. And I don't think any surprise, rising uh, interest rates and inflation. That was a top response, almost 40%. Uh, Geopolitical risk was second, about 38%. So those two alone, accounting for nearly 80% of the responses, And then prolonged economic slowdown was third with 12%. And obviously, there are some interrelationships between these three concerns, right? These aren't standalone in a vacuum. But I actually want to tie this into another poll question, which was, my biggest challenge in managing client portfolios today is, and there were four options here, generating reasonable income safely, managing volatility, Concerns about equity valuations, and then battling the fallout of uh, of inflation, and number one here was managing volatility, thirty one percent. Number two, generating reasonable income safely, which you were just speaking to, twenty seven percent. Third, battling the fallout of inflation, about twenty four percent, and then concerns about equity valuations was a fourth with eighteen percent. But you know, as you look at those, pretty even results across the board, and. I just love to hear your take on, I guess, both of those those survey questions I went through. And maybe you can tie this into ETFs as well, just in terms of how you think these concerns are uh, sort of manifesting themselves in ETF flows uh, or, or even specific products that advisors may have interest in. And uh, I, I talked about this last week. I think most advisors coming into the year were already concerned about rising rates and inflation, right? we then added a major geopolitical situation on top of those. So uh, there, there are definitely some challenges out there right now for advisors.
3: Well, you're right. And Nate, and we've talked a little bit about this. When you look at the S&P and continued flows that go into the S&P, it, it, it's been really tough to beat coming out of the financial crisis. However, it, it's no secret that it's very heavy in the tech area. It's very heavy in the growth area. It's very heavy in the small number of stocks, and then when you factor in the NASDAQ 100 that a lot of people have been uh, leaning towards, it begs for diversity. So we've started to see more diversification in equity portfolios uh, for advisors in in a big, big way. And then back to trying to generate income, many have moved away from the 60-40 allocation to 70-30 or 80-20, looking to get alternative income in In maybe areas like um options overlay strategies or dividend related strategies, but it does it's never guaranteed those areas have had some big big uh volatility as well. I think the big surprise this past year has been advisors have been very uh cautious about inflation they've been concerned about inflation in a big big way, but we didn't see a, m- a lot of money going into commodities last year. This year, we've seen almost three times as much money going into commodities already this year than we saw all of last year. So I think they're starting to get it. And one other point is gold has been one of the worst performers in of the commodities baskets. But historically, during times of inflation, it tends to be a second half player. So just recently, that's starting to kick in, which would give us some type of inclination that this commodity's run maybe with us for a while as we continue to see problems in the middle, uh, p- problems in, in Eastern Europe, uh, supply chains. We got farming season coming up. We're paying more at the pumps. So all of those things continue to look like it's going to fuel higher inflation.
2: Tom, for investors specifically concerned about rising rates and inflation, when you look at uh, where you're seeing interest at ETF trends, or even through your conversations with advisors, um, are are those the two areas that really stand out to you? uh, Commodities and gold? Or are there any other ETFs that you're seeing a lot of interest in? And and just to be clear, these aren't, you know, recommendations, everyone do your own homework. I'm just curious if there are some ETF tickers standing out to you right now.
3: Well, you know, what's interesting is uh, areas like Uh, Kathy Wood and ARK, you know, even though it's fallen off precipitously uh, that the shares there tend to be really sticky. Uh, Advisors are being smart and then they're not bailing. Uh, And areas like emerging markets, uh, same thing. I mean, it's been really, really tough. But advisors are smart. When they see opportunities, they'll swoop in. I mean, if if you like those types of diversified allocations to client portfolios a year ago, you should really love them now because they're half price. Uh, and that, that's something that we continue to watch. Another area that's interesting is uh, ESG. It's really fallen off, and part of that is because of performance. Uh, ESG allocations tend not to have a high allocation to the energy sector, and energy's been on fire. So we haven't seen as much interest in that area even though ESG has been in the news a lot lately, will continue to be, I think, in the coming months.
2: Yeah, and shameless plug, I I should note that on next week's podcast, I'll be visiting with both iShares and uh, MSCI, and we're going to talk about ESG specifically about how it's being impacted by the, the Russia-Ukraine war. And then also inflation, you, you know, when you think about uh, what that has done to tech stocks. I'm really looking forward to that because I do think ESGs come under the microscope here recently with, with those two things in particular. Um, wh- one other thing, I want to get to one more uh, poll question. We only have a, a couple minutes left. But, you, you know, going back to geopolitical uh, concerns, I know I'm bouncing around a little bit here. I just I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. Um, since Russia invaded Ukraine, if, if you look, Tom, the S&P 500 is actually up like six percent since then. And I, I've talked about this before. It's just so tough handicapping how those types of events will impact markets. You, you know, Russia and Ukraine. They don't even know what's going to happen from one day to the next. So how can investors even begin to try to allocate money based on that? To me, it just doesn't make sense. I I wanted to point that out because obviously that is something that is front and center and showed up in the polls. The the other thing I I want to mention, just going back actually to the first question we discussed on the S&P 500, is, you know, I know it's cliché. But I do think the uh, U.S. is still viewed as the best house in a bad neighborhood, or whatever you know metaphor you want to use. I, I think investors are still skittish about allocating internationally. You mentioned emerging markets. Uh, you know, even if you look over into developed markets, even if there are perceived better valuations, I, I think investors still feel a lot more comfortable allocating, uh, you know, here at home. I'm not saying that's what they should be doing. Right? We could have a whole uh, conversation around home country bias. But, uh, you know, I think that right now that there's just that level of comfortability in U.S. Yeah. Uh, markets. OK, let me give, right, go right, ahead.
3: You're right, Nate, for sure. And and uh, I think just to put things in perspective, first and foremost, you know, uh, our hearts continue to go out to the people of Ukraine. And it's just devastating. And we know a ton of people in our business that are donating. And we just continue to encourage people to do what they can to to help shore up those poor people in Ukraine right now. However, putting things in perspective, the economy of, of Russia is smaller than the economy of Texas. And putting the, you know, when you, when you weigh that out, we're not as negatively affected, especially because from an import standpoint, we're not as dependent on Russia where Europe is. So we are a little bit um, protected from uh, the economic fallout that's going on over there. Hence more people feeling comfortable staying home with their allocation just the way they have over the last 10 years. However, there's also some great value overseas, uh, both in Asia and, and in Europe, where they were not matching the performance in the last 10 years that we saw here in the U.S., and the valuations are so much less expensive. So if people are looking for opportunities and diversifying, Those are some areas to consider.
2: Well, and that's actually a a perfect uh, table setting for the last poll question that I have here. I I just think it's a good summary question in terms of what advisors are actually doing moving forward. So the question was, which asset classes are you making the greatest contributions to in 2022? 52%. 52% domestic equities. 34%. This was a standout to me. 34% commodities and alternatives. And then third was actually cash at a little over uh, 9%. So, you know, I, I actually think that's what we were just speaking to and that, you know, maybe investors should be looking overseas at some point, but they're still staying home. They're looking at domestic equities. And then I think with inflationary concerns, uh, looking to commodities and, and alternatives. Pretty interesting.
3: It, it, it is, and it, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. I'm just uh, a little bit shocked that the biggest one of the biggest concerns among advisors over the last couple years was inflation, and we didn't see a lot of allocation going towards inflation protection outside of TIPS. But now it's on everyone's radar, hence uh, a reason to be bullish in that area. If we get a lot of buyers coming in, it doesn't take a lot of money going into that area to see prices advance. So uh, that'll be interesting for sure. Hey, Nate, before we run, I'm looking forward to seeing you at Exchange. I know you're going to be live with your podcast with Dave Nottig and Todd Rosenbluth, you get the tag team together. Uh, I know you guys are going to have a lot of fun.
2: I'm so excited. And for anybody attending, be sure to catch us. Uh, yes, we will be live and, and in person. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. Tom, great stuff this week. Hey, good luck on the rest of your uh, your tourney bracket. Yeah, you too, Nate. I hope you win the cues. Hey, uh, thank you. That was Tom Leiden, founder and CEO of ETF Trends
0: did 2020's market crash shed a new light on how you view your portfolio risk CDC, the Victory Share's U.S. Equity Income Enhanced Volatility Weighted ETF, helps investors curb emotional decision making by investing in large cap dividend stocks with the ability to systematically shift to cash during times of market duress in a tax-efficient manner. Visit vcmcom CDC today to learn more.
1: Carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses before investing. To obtain a prospectus or summary prospectus containing this and other important information, visit Visit vcm.com prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. This ETF is distributed by Foreside Fund Services, LLC.
2: My next guest is Zhang Bui, head of US exchange traded products at NASDAQ, who currently lists about 450 exchange traded products with over $1.1 trillion in assets. And Zhang is responsible for developing and executing the strategic vision for NASDAQ's ETP business. Now, prior to NASDAQ, Zhang was director of listings at SIBO Global Markets. Before that, she was uh, with the New York Stock Exchange, and she's now on the line with me from New York. Zhang, welcome back to the podcast.
4: Nate, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on your show.
2: Well, how's everything been uh, going in your world? You know, it's amazing. So I was looking yesterday, despite all of the uh, the market turmoil and volatility, We're already approaching something like 100 new ETFs launched this year, which I think is just uh, remarkable, especially coming off uh, the record year last year. I'm assuming you've been keeping uh, fairly busy recently? Yeah,
4: definitely been a crazy start to the year, and it doesn't seem to be any sign of slowing down. The ETF launch pipeline continues to be strong despite the market volatility, inflation, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But, you know, we see it impacting the IPO pipeline for corporates, but definitely not the case for ETFs. Um, So we've been really keeping busy talking to existing issuers who have been expanding their product lineup and also new entrants to the space. Um, You've seen a number of new entrants um, that were large mutual fund managers who are entering the ETF space for the first time and launching suites of products. Um, so, and, you know, we, with the strong start, we continue to see a healthy pipeline of product filing. So, you know, it could be we're on pace for another record year, you know, on top of the, the record year that we had last year. And it really shows the strong demand for ETFs and the versatility of ETFs as an investment in trading vehicles um, and weathering all market conditions.
2: All right. So when, when you talk about the demand of ETFs, uh, you and I are going to discuss this survey and report NASDAQ recently put together, which I, I mentioned at the top of the uh, podcast. I found this really interesting. It was titled ETPs are empowering the next generation of investors. And th- this focused on retail investors. I guess before we get into some of the results, just talk more about who was surveyed. And, and then I'm also curious, uh, Zhang, why did NASDAQ conduct this particular survey?
4: Yeah, definitely. You know, as we talked about, retail investors are becoming a stronger and stronger force of influence in the market, particularly for ETFs. Um, and we anticipate that trend to continue. So NASA really wanted to understand more about retail tra- investors trading and investing tendencies. Where are they learning about investment ideas? How does it vary across generations of investors? So we partnered with Morning Consult to conduct an online survey targeting a sample, a representative sample of 2,000 retail investors. And, you know, as a listing exchange for ETFs, we support ETF issuers and the products that are listed on us throughout the life cycle that ETF and trading and marketing is a key area of focus. You know, our goal is to help our issuers amplify their message and reach the target audience. And for many of our ETFs, that target audience is the retail investor, you know, they're uh, providing their investment objective is attractive to the retail investor. So the insights from this survey really allows us to better support our issuers in developing and marketing products by tailoring it based on the generation of retail investors and how do they prefer to receive sources of financial information.
2: Yeah, I love stuff like this. And uh, and let's get into some of the results, which, uh, by the way, I've got to tell you, so this was segmented by generation. And I saw the description for Gen X, which that's me. Uh, and, and in the little description for Gen X, it said, uh, basically, quote, we're still working and earning good incomes, but we'll need to start thinking about retirement in t- the next 10 years. And I, I read that and I immediately felt old. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, I'm a younger Gen Xer, uh, but, but but still, in any event, let's get to some of the uh, key findings from the survey And I I thought we could start broad, and then we can get into some of the ETF-specific results. So first, and and perhaps most relevant to ETF issuers, who we have a lot that listen to this podcast, is how uh, investors, especially younger investors, are getting their information. And it's interesting. So the survey found that younger investors are far more likely to listen to podcasts, uh, go to online message boards, uh, places like Reddit, use social media, those sorts of things to get their ETF information. How does that change the game for ETF issuers? Like, like, as you saw those results, what do you think the the, uh, key takeaways are here?
4: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the the key uh, takeaway from the study itself is that there's different amongst generation and you know you know we definitely don't want you to feel old or anyone reading the summary (laughs) that we have in the table to feel that way i think everyone's, um so it's um but it's really about the risk of one-size-fits-all approach to appealing to investors so we really want it to be able to have some high-level takeaways on how to best approach your target audience that are spanning the different generation and what their focus and investment objective throughout the their stages of their investing life so you know as you mentioned younger investors do tend to use digital resources like social media that listen to podcasts like yourself and discussion boards to do their research which means you as know, ETF issuers who are launching products are targeting the younger uh, retail investor audience, you know, such as ones that are marketing thematic funds, you know, thematic tech, digital assets, the metaverse, you know, those kind of products that really appeal to the younger generation. Maybe from a marketing standpoint, they can consider uh, running social media campaigns, marketing on podcasts or discussion boards. So it's really just a way for us to really be informed of how to best um, spend our marketing and invest in marketing that way.
2: Okay, so that's where investors, particularly younger investors, are getting their information. Now, the survey also asked which financial companies investors were most familiar with, uh, where, where they're actually putting this information to work. Right. And with Gen Z and Gen Y, when they were asked which financial companies they were aware of, Robinhood ranked highest Robinhood. What do you think the takeaway is there for ETF issuers? You you know, that's not Schwab or Fidelity, the older guard. We're talking about Robinhood.
4: Yeah, we really wanted to understand, you know, from a brokerage platforms, what are how are users using them, and how does it vary across generation? We definitely do see that to be the case. And while Fidelity, J.P. Morgan, and Schwab continue, and other, you know, brokerage firms continue to have that strong presence amongst all retail investors, regardless of age. But it really shows that competition in the brokerage platforms is fierce. You know, commission free trading and all the digital tools and mobile apps have made it very accessible and easy for investors, especially younger investors. To, to trade and become more interested in investing, which is a great thing, and Robinhood has captured a large market share amongst these younger investors. So it really is a great opportunity for exchanges and ETF issuers to partner with the newcomers like Robinhood and other brokerage platforms um, on providing potentially in-app research or education material that really could help further build investors' trust and sustain engagement as they try to as they explore new product type and asset classes like ETFs.
2: Two other uh, data points on this topic that stood out to me from the survey were, um, number one, younger investors are – much more likely to check their accounts and make trades. It was by a significant margin. So uh, Gen Z and Gen Y, they're much more likely to look at their investment portfolio several times a day and and make trades. Uh, They're also spending a lot more time doing their own research and and, and buying and selling ETFs, as as we hit on earlier. The other thing that was interesting here is that um, all investors are looking beyond traditional investments for uh, alternative options to grow their, their money. And that includes ETPs. Um, options in crypto. And what stood out to me there, Zhang, was just that I think about a platform like Robin uh, or like Robinhood that does offer uh, crypto trading. And, you know, maybe that's an uh, allure, particularly to younger investors, that not only can they invest in ETPs, but they can also access crypto. I just thought that was interesting. Um, okay, another area the survey covered was the importance of financial advisors and to both ETF issuers and, and retail investors. And, you know, what I thought was was pretty noteworthy here was across all generations, investors still trust financial advisors more than any other resource when making an investment decision. So we we just talked about younger investors using these various digital resources. Younger investors still trust a financial advisor more than those digital resources. What do you take from that?
4: yeah with the survey, we seek not to understand not just to understand you know where are the sources people are learning about financial information, but really where do they trust and I think that trust is really important when it comes to financial advice and financial expertise um so you know it's you know, there's been a lot of talk about like you know the move towards more digital and you know uh, the role of the financial advisors but so this survey really solidify how important financial advisors are. So while, as you mentioned, younger investors are looking at their portfolio more often, they're spending more time doing their own research through those financial resources, uh, through those digital resources, but financial advisors are still the most trustworthy source, and financial advisors are the largest owners of U.S. listed ETFs, and they will continue to become uh, and be an important channel for ETF issuers to target. You know, they really are that driving force of ETF usage on behalf of their end clients. So, you know, for ETF issuers, you know, we we've always targeted the financial advisor channel, and it, it will continue to be that important uh, focus going forward.
2: As an aside, for uh, financial advisors listening to this. The survey also noted the importance of financial advisor social media, that especially if you think about how Gen Z and Gen Y get their information, and given that they do trust financial advisors more than any other resource, you you sort of have to put two and two together here, which means advisors need to leverage digital media and and social media to help educate uh, investors. I just think that's something... Every advisor should be thinking about, uh, especially those who are on the fence with uh, with social media. Um, OK, Zhang, let's get to a few of the ETF specific survey results. And uh, again, younger investors. So Gen Z and Y, they're much more familiar with the ETFs than Gen Xers and, and boomers. Uh, do, do you take anything from that?
4: Yeah, I, I think to You know, as you mentioned, younger investors are more familiar with ETPs and older generations, but they are investing less assets into ETFs mm-hmm. than the older generation. I think that's also a factor of income and wealth uh, accumulation. So, you know, but what the figure really suggests is that there's so much more room to grow for ETPs. Like, there's a broader audience that we haven't tapped into um, that can really you know further the growth and the inflows of ETFs. So, especially with the older generation, you know, if they're less familiar with ETFs and how that it, they can add value. To their portfolio, you know, for example, you know, um, if their investment objective is to be more invested in fixed income if they get become older, um, bond ETFs to be a really efficient way for them to access that market. You know, if it aligns with their investment objective, so really being able to think about it, like, how you're positioning your product to which generation to be able to really go after um, the, that uh, the the right medium to reach that end, uh, end client.
2: When you talk about tapping into a broader audience, the first thing that comes to my mind is ETF education. And I know that's a topic that's very close to your heart as well. We've talked about that before. This survey did highlight a knowledge gap in ETPs. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, as you mentioned, it, it it does highlight that that gap and it's an opportunity for us to work as an industry to bridge that gap for retail investors, especially as it relates to financial analysis and trading. You know, our survey results show that a smaller percentage of investors surveyed were familiar with key metrics such as trapping area or sharp ratio or different order types that they can consider when investing in an ETF. So, you know, we find retail investors could really benefit from the availability of research and education, especially, you know, working with with some of the new retail broker on in-app education and research um, to really help them educate on fund due diligence and best practices for trading.
2: Zhang, when I think about sort of NASDAQ's role in educating investors on ETFs and some of the other things that you do for retail investors, I thought it might be interesting to sort of flip NASDAQ's role on its head in that we just walked through how you work with ETF issuers. But what about retail investors? Like, how do you support... Retail investors specifically, whether it's through education or otherwise, because I think about all of the uh, the, the, the rich survey data we, we just walked through here, which I think is very helpful to ETF issuers. But how might you use this to support retail investors?
4: Yeah, so as we discussed, retail has become a very powerful segment in shaping the market activity. So, you know, as a firm, we're focused on solutions to support the retail investors, whether it's ETF or broader equity, broader trading in our markets. So, you know, one of the things we've done um, is, you know, our data has shown that retailers do more trading in the morning. So we've enhanced our opening auction process, which is increasingly becoming a more important time of day for retail liquidity. So we enhanced our process last summer to really promote greater transparency and flexibility for retail customers to participate in the auction. We also have robust solutions to promote liquidity and price improvement for retail investors, you know, such as our NASFBX retail price improvement programs. We also have a dedicated ETF liquidity program to really uh, help promote efficient trading for investors who are looking to buy or sell ETFs. And then generally, financial education is very important to us. We provide education content today that is geared towards retail through our smart investing website and newsletters, as well as educational webinars in partnership with various industry participants across asset class, so not just ETFs, equities, options, and so forth. So it's definitely very important for us to really promote that um, and support the retail trader.
2: Zhang, we only have about uh, two minutes left, and I I, I saved those two minutes intentionally because I want to ask you about a completely unrelated topic before I let you go. You probably already know what it's going to be, uh, but I'll I'll just set the stage like this. I would say few in the industry have the front row seat like you do. I feel like you hear about all the latest ETF ideas coming to market, you have conversations with uh, new ETF issuers, certainly everyone else supporting the ETF ecosystem. And you may recall that. Last time you joined me, it was right around the time the first Bitcoin Futures ETFs were coming to market. And we talked about how NASDAQ was uh, helping Valkyrie launch their product, the Valkyrie Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker BTF. But as part of that, uh, obviously, you're heavily involved behind the scenes with uh, regulators in the various product uh, parties that make these products go, right? Authorized participants and, and whatnot. I'm curious... Do you have any new perspective on a uh, a spot Bitcoin ETF? Are you optimistic, pessimistic, uh, no idea?
4: <laughs> no, I think you know the spot Bitcoin product is really the holy grail that you know everyone is anticipating. You, if you look at the Bitcoin futures ETF, you know, as you mentioned, they launched for the first time uh, last fall, and they're working as designed, and you know they if they're a great indication for the demand for digital asset and spot Bitcoin ETF generally. Now, the Bitcoin future launches, you know, as they're working as design, that, those launches were amongst the biggest launches in ETF history. Um, BBH recently released their global ETF survey indicating more than 50% of investors plan on adding digital asset strategies into their portfolio in 2022. So there definitely is demand for that spot Bitcoin and other digital assets ETFs. So, um, so that's as there's that demand us as exchanges, issuers, and market participants will continue to drive towards bringing that product to market, but investor protection is at the core of the SEC's consideration. There's been uh, disapprovals after disapproval orders for spot Bitcoin filings, and they consistently stress the need for surveillance sharing agreements with regulated markets of significant size related to Bitcoin or demonstrate another means to prevent fraudulent or manipulated acts. So we're working with issuers and the ecosystem to find solutions that can address that concern, because until then, you know that, um, that's, that's really where you know, that spot Bitcoin uh, holdup would be.
2: No, I completely agree with that. I mean, I keep saying the same thing, which is that I feel like SEC Chair Gensler has been crystal clear that he wants a robust regulatory framework in place on the underlying crypto exchanges. And until that happens, it just seems like it's going to be a difficult path for a a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, I, I, I could go on for an hour about why I disagree with some of the thought process there, but I also get it. Uh, from the SEC's perspective as well. I understand what they're trying to do. But I I think the bottom line is we're going to be waiting for a little while. Uh, But Zang, uh, great having you back on the podcast. Uh, Always enjoy the conversation. Thank you for joining me.
4: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
2: That was Zang Bui, head of U.S. exchange-traded products at NASDAQ.
0: This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC.
2: I'm now joined by Kevin Kelly, founder and CEO of Kelly ETFs, a new ETF issuer who just launched their first three ETFs back in January. But I've got to tell you, Kevin is no newcomer to ETFs. He was actually the creator of the NASDAQ 100 covered call ETF, ticker uh, QILD, one of the largest options ETFs out there. He's CEO of Kelly Benchmark Indexes, which is behind two popular ETFs, Server, SRVR, and INDS, two Pacer ETFs with about $1.8 billion invested. He's founder and CEO of Kelly Intelligence, which has designed a uh, number of indexes, including three indexes that power the ETFs we'll discuss today. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Kevin, great reconnecting. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me again.
5: It's, a, it's, it's been a pleasure. We actually did it a long time ago when we launched QYLD, so it's good to come back around.
2: No, great having you back. And, uh, and look, as I mentioned, you are no newcomer to the ETF space. You're no newbie. You've been involved for quite a while in various capacities, but you did just launch a new ETF issuer. So let's start there. Give us the uh, origin story. How did this all come together with Kelly ETFs? Yeah, so this all came
5: together because I really wanted to have a a direct and better relationship with um, the investors as well as all the partners within the ETF ecosystem, as well as really bringing uh, cutting-edge exposure with precise strategy construction. And in order to do that, you need to be in control of the entire process in vertical uh, from start to finish of bringing out an ETF. It just makes the process a lot easier. It helps with uh, the product. Uh, So that's really what what I was focusing on because if you look at what we're doing, we're bringing really concentrated portfolios to give you that uh, exact direct exposure that investors are looking for. So that's really the genesis behind it.
2: Okay, so let's go through some of those uh, exposures, some of your ETFs. And the first one is the Kelly Residential and Apartment Real Estate ETF. The ticker symbol is R-E-S-I, RESI. Just take us through the basics on this one. What exactly does this hold?
5: So this holds actually all of the publicly traded residential multifamily uh, real estate companies in the United States. In Canada. So it comprises of four different company types. So the first one is apartments, which everyone's super familiar with. The second one is single-family residential. The third one is student housing. And the fourth is manufactured housing. So that is the actual core uh, subsectors of the residential uh, property sector. So that's what it holds.
2: Let me ask you this. For the uh, real estate novice, how does an ETF like this compare to some of the broader REIT ETFs on the market? Just in terms of uh, a basic risk return profile, what are some of the differences here?
5: Yeah, so some of the differences to take into consideration is that not all real estate is created equal, especially when you think about each property type has its own idiosyncratic risks and rewards. Think about office, right? Are we going to return to the office? Uh, so that's, a, that's an idiosyncratic risk think about uh, the duration of the leases, office leases can be 10 years or more. Uh, So there's a lot of different types of structures when it comes to real estate and the different property types. So what really differentiates this on a risk-reward basis is that we believe the companies within uh, the resi sector have strong pricing power in an inflationary environment because Housing keeps going up, as well as they can pass on an increase uh, in rent higher every year. So the duration is only one. There's very limited supply uh, out there. So the demand is voracious for it. So you have really an imbalance there. So the way to think about it is you're not getting broad-based exposure to multiple different property types, multiple different leases. You're getting targeted exposure to uh, a traditional real estate asset class with specialized management teams that focus on their sector, right? So if you think about single family rentals, you have companies, these companies with great balance sheets, they help rent out houses to a lot of millennials who are, who are starting to form their own households, which is the primary driver of residential real estate.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about that investment thesis overall? I mean, when you look at the residential real estate market right now, I do think most investors are aware, as you pointed out, there's been a voracious demand here, certainly low supply. However, you look now, we do have mortgage rates uh, starting to you know, tick back up. But, you know, on the other hand... Uh, there's been a decade of underbuilding, right? Uh, we have mm-hmm. seen this post-pandemic uh, housing boom. I, I do think more people are prioritizing personal space, right, because they're spending a lot more time there with uh, with work from home. And in, in, you alluded to another area, which I find really interesting, which is the single-family home rentals. I don't think some people realize the extent that these larger rental REITs are, are really playing in the space and, and buying up properties. But can you just give us the the, the overall thumbnail sketch of, of this residential uh, real estate market? What do you see moving forward?
5: Yeah, so I think you touched base on a lot of key points that people make, need to take into consideration. And what's happened is is that we've been underbuilding since 2008 in the great financial crisis. So that's one of the biggest issues we had is that there was really no big build of housing over the last decade. So you had supply completely come out, and then that coincided and perfectly fit into where the, the biggest cohort, primary renter cohort, which are uh, millennials, started entering into the market and wanting to get housing. So peak home buying actually has increased to the age of 34 from 29 in the 1970s. So you have this huge demographic shift as well. So it's demand and demographics. And so the average um, you know, age of a renter has gone up significantly, and it's a bigger uh, generational size. So what's happening in, within the housing market is that, think about, if we go back to 2008, to middle of of 2015-ish, let's say that time period, everybody was talking about how millennials were living in their parents' basement and, you know, they were, they were hard as a consumer because they, you know, they, it was a tough economy. Well, you know, to quote the killers, they're coming out of their cage and they're feeling just fine because they're out there uh, and they, their balance sheets are great. They want to buy houses, but there's no inventory. So Touching base on that, you typically had people go into major metropolitan cities like New York, like Chicago, like L.A., and they were renting. And now they want to buy houses, but there's no houses uh, that are really available in those major metropolitan areas, so they have to go out to the suburbs. And so that's what you're sort of seeing happen, this migration out of the cities uh, as households are forming because the millennials are, you know, graduating college. Then then they would go move to the cities and get a job then then they met their spouses then they started having families and so that's where the niche of the single family uh rental reITs are is really filling a void because what they've done is they they really have great starter homes for families to move into as they get accustomed to the school districts they've got great balance sheets um, they are able to manage the properties especially on a on a technology basis really well so So we've noticed that the renters feel really comfortable. And in that market, the single-family rental uh, companies that are publicly traded, they own less than 1% of the rental housing market. So it's a greenfield space for them. They're actually doing partnerships and JVs with the home builders. So, for example, they will partner with a Lennar Homes or a Toll Brothers, for example. So Invitation Homes has partnered with Toll Brothers to do custom build. So they will actually go buy a big plot of land and then custom build houses just so they can rent them. And they've got the latest technology in there. So it's a great market because um, we see aging millennials continue to move from multifamily apartments into single-family housing as they get more comfortable with their area. So, uh, and they're really positioned, by the way, in the Sunbelt, which is some of the hottest areas for, for housing growth.
2: Do you see that rental market is strong enough to uh, sort of supersede rising mortgage rates, right? Because obviously, if you have uh, rising mortgage rates going to make the the cost of owning a house uh, greater, that monthly payment goes up. So maybe more people do look to to home rentals. But I I agree. I mean, you have all these millennials now forming households. That's creating a lot of demand. So I I guess in a nutshell, Kevin, my question is, is that demand strong enough to to supersede mortgage rates uh, creeping up?
5: Actually, mortgage rates are a tailwind to uh, the, the multifamily market because what happens is, is that we've seen that the mortgage rates will go up larger than what the increase in the rental is, uh, the, the rental prices uh, and rates, right, for mm-hmm. if you're doing a, a yearly rental. So mortgage rates going up is actually a tailwind for single-family rental homes. Uh, because people actually need to then save more money to buy more house because the financing cost of that house is going up. So they're paying more to the piper than to the land and property. So that's a way to think about it. So it so, serves sort of as a tailwind. So as housing's gotten more expensive because we've seen home prices go up, that's been a tailwind, and now mortgage prices are going up. And the reason we believe um, that uh, – Housing prices aren't going to get hit hard by an increase in mortgage prices, is because there's limited inventory. So what's going to happen is, is that less homes are going to be come up for sale because the people in those homes then can't get a cheaper mortgage. So it's this is this self fulfilling cycle. It's it's pretty interesting because um, 60 minutes actually just did an expose this past uh, this past weekend on that on how rents are actually going to go up for uh, residential properties that are rented, uh, as a, even with mortgages going up. So it actually just dovetails into what you're saying, because the cost of housing is going up, ownership is going, the cost of ownership is going up, so people are going to look more to rentals.
2: Yeah, intuitively that all makes uh, sense to me. Um, Kevin, just a couple minutes left. Let me mention your other two ETFs. So you have the Kelly Hotel and Lodging Sector ETF, ticker symbol HOTL. And then you also have the Kelly CRISPR and Gene Editing Technology ETF ticker XDNA. The question I have for you is, Is I look at your three ETFs that you've come to market with, I know that you know firsthand how competitive the ETF space is, right? It is tough out there. Absolutely a a, a blood sport. So how, how do you attempt to stand out? Like, how do you plan on cutting through all the noise and getting your message in front of investors?
5: Yeah, so so we we plan to do that by bringing uh, superior uh, strategies that are in demand. So people want concentrated portfolios for the exposure that they need so hotel is a great example because you know people are talking about going from pandemic to endemic but they don't necessarily want to own jet lines which have exposure to oil higher input costs it's a heavily regulated market as well as you know cruise lines which is a niche segment of traveler they want to go into uh, one of the best segments of the travel and tourism industry and that's hotel so it provides that exposure that direct exposure as opposed to owning all of the travel and tourism industry so that's just a great example uh because you're going to get uh just the hotels the operators as well as an airbnb in there um which you know it it covers the entire space so you're not just buying the hotel reeds or the hotel c corps you're owning the entire vertical uh you know another great example is uh with xdna separating ourselves from the other strategies because if you look at genomic strategies they focus on everything. They focus on knock-down technology, knock-out technology. They have, it's a broad-based genomics, which, you know, if you know anything about the biotechnology sector, you know, there's different verticals that you want exposure to and you don't necessarily want overexposure to a certain uh, uh, subsector. So What this is providing is those that focus on the CRISPR and gene editing because they will actually eradicate uh, not only disease but also some therapeutics that, um, you know, are going to become inferior to the CRISPR and gene editing products that are out there. So, you know, we think concentrated exposure uh, to precise strategies is exactly what what the market needs and wants, especially for diversification purpose in these types of areas because it's hard to track you know, single-family housing, apartments, and which one should I buy? We'll buy the entire sector. You've got a concentrated portfolio of 20-plus names here. Same with hotels, same with um, XDNA. You can look into it and say, hey, I don't know which CRISPR and gene editing name is going to be the best. Let's buy them all at the same time. I want exposure to that, not necessarily uh, large, you know, genomic uh, sector in general.
2: Kevin, when you think about uh, building out your ETF lineup moving forward, you know I can't let you go – without asking you about this Ethereum futures ETF that you filed for last year. I believe you ended up having to uh, withdraw that filing, if I'm not mistaken. But you know I'm very interested in this area. Can you tell us anything at all about your uh, efforts here?
5: yeah sure, so I think it's important to note that the ethereum futures market is is a relatively uh nascent market compared to the Bitcoin futures, which has been out for many, many years, so it's a relatively new market. There's limited data and information out there on the specific uh, underlying futures. Uh, and how they perform during various market cycles. So I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, as the space grows, as the future market grows for Ethereum, I think there's a, a, a greater chance as time goes on that a futures-based, um, you know, product can come out because it is focused solely on the futures contract and not the underlying, uh, you know, spot Ethereum. So um, which you cover very well, uh, you know, it, when it comes to Bitcoin. So I think, as the futures market matures, and uh, there's a lot more visibility into liquidity, um, you know, as well as the growth of the other uh, futures-based uh, Bitcoin ETFs, and seeing how those plays out, I think I think we we should be able to see an Ethereum futures contract. Uh, linked ETF sometime in the near future. I anticipate it would probably be, you know, hopefully within a year, but less than 18 months. But you, you never know, right? I mean, the problem is, is that Chairman Gensler actually views Ethereum as a security because it came about through ICO, unlike Bitcoin, which he views as a commodity, uh, which was just created.
2: Well, I need this to happen in like the next nine months or so. As you may be aware, uh, in Ethereum futures ETF was one of my 2022 ETF predictions. And uh, I, I like to go five for five every year on those. So uh, we, we may need a little help here. But Kevin, congratulations on the launch of uh, Kelly ETFs and, and the lineup there. Certainly wish you all the success. Thank you for joining me this week.
5: Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure.
2: That was Kevin Kelly, founder and CEO of Kelly ETFs. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Direction. If you would like to learn more about Direction ETFs, you can visit www.direction.com. Next week, I'll be joined by both BlackRock's Sarah Gelberg and MSCI's Guillermo Cano. We'll be discussing ESG investing through the lens of everything going on right now with Russia and Ukraine. Should be really interesting. Until then, have a great week, everyone.